0: From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has
1: you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable.
0: Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Welcome, 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 everybody, back to the podcast. I tell you what, today we have a pretty unique podcast and I'll tell you why. We're going to be talking with Nathan Worthington of Alabama who graduated from Auburn, moved to South Carolina to do a fawn mortality rate study. And he talks a lot about what he did what tasks he did for that study uh, some of the ins and outs uh, the objectives of that study and some of the results of that study as well Uh, and then at the end of that we get into kind of a mini bs hunter profile session we talk a lot about you know how he started as a bow hunter who got him into bow hunting and then just kind of bs a little bit about uh, what he likes about bow hunting the experiences and how he's kind of grown over the last four years uh, of solely hunting with a bow and, and kind of putting the gun down so it's a really interesting podcast today and uh, I'm glad Nathan had the time to come on on, on the podcast because the uh, you know the, uh, the the research that these guys did is pretty interesting and uh, I, hopefully you guys uh, like what you hear today now we all know that Lone Wolf tree stands are the best hunting tree stand especially for the guy who needs to be mobile like I feel we all need to be mobile and if you if you're hunting out of permanent tree stands yes there are some times where you know a good pinch point tree stand isn't going to move throughout the years. But then there's some times when you need to be very mobile and be in a specific tree and not a tree that fits your tree stand, so to speak. And that's where Lone Wolf tree stands comes into play. And I tell you what, what you need to do is if you haven't, you know, bit the bullet and got a Lone Wolf yet, uh, you need to go to lone lonewolfhuntingproducts.com slash nine fingers, okay? And you go to that website, and it will allow you to enter your email address in, all right? So you enter your email address, and then it's going to give you a confirmation that you've done this. And by doing that, you have entered into a giveaway and you will receive a discount code for $50 off of all orders over $200. And again, that's lone wolf hunting products.com slash nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers. And, uh, I'll give you a, a very good discount on lone wolf products. So That's all we got to do for an intro today. Hopefully, all you guys enjoy this podcast, and uh, I'm going to tell you right now, I enjoyed it. I I love listening to the science behind all this stuff, and uh, Nathan uh, definitely talks a lot about that, but again, I'm talking too much. Here is today's, man, I don't even know what to call it. I'll just call it a BS session with Nathan Worthington. All right, everybody. On the phone with me today, Mr. Nathan Worthington. How you doing today, Nathan? I'm doing great. Good, good. So we've had to, like stop and start this podcast to to, uh, get it to where it needs to be to be right right now. So uh, first off, thank you for being patient. Uh, And uh, how we got to this point today was you sent me an email or a message through Facebook uh, giving a little bit of background about yourself and uh, how you went to school for wildlife science. Uh, You live in Alabama and all that stuff. So before we get into why you know what this podcast is about and what we're going to discuss today why don't you tell everybody where you're from specifically and what do you do for a living
1: okay i'm um i'm from alabama i currently live on the warrior river um it's the biggest bend on the warrior river if you were to look at the map uh strategically i have about thirty-two thousand acres directly across the river from me so um that's, that's one part that I love about where I live. Um, I did, I went to Auburn University, um, and I received a wildlife science degree there. I spent, uh, several years, um, uh, working on, um, a research project, um, in South Carolina. And, um, and then when that kind of got to a point to where there was going to be a little bit of a break, I, I decided I wanted to go back to school, get my master's. And, um, I decided that I wanted to teach, and I went into special education, and I currently teach students with multiple disabilities.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So it sounds like you're busy.
1: Yeah, I, I'm busy, but a good busy.
0: Good, good. So let's see here. The first thing I wanna I, I want to talk to you about, and this is a, a question that I've uh, that I've asked other guests of this podcast is, with you living in Alabama, why? why did you choose Auburn over the university of Alabama?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, believe it or not, I was raised an Alabama fan. Right. Um, uh, Auburn has a beautiful campus, wonderful university, but Auburn is at least at that time was the only land grant college in the state. And so that means that was the only school that would offer the wildlife science degree gotcha that i wanted gotcha so,
0: okay so yeah. did uh did any family members like kick you out try to get you kicked out of the family for going to auburn
1: uh well fortunately my mom has degrees for both okay and my dad um you know he was he was my dad was a coach and teacher as well um and since I never actually went to any of the football games, I typically uh, would catch the games on night on ESPN the scores or whatever. That I get done hunting, so okay, um, you know, they, I got you. So, they, they, so you were more focused were okay. on
0: the you were more focused on the hunting aspect.
1: At that point, I I did play um, baseball gotcha. for a little bit in junior college, but yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Hunting has always hunting and fishing has always been a a priority or gotcha gotcha
0: so let's see here um you went to school for wildlife science uh and you know obviously it sounds like you have an interest you know obviously have an interest in hunting but what drove you to go to school to get you know to start off with a wildlife science degree well
1: um Believe it or not, I never was one of those people that kind of flipped around on majors, you know, like what I wanted to go to school for, different things like that. You know, as soon as, at some point in my youth, when I became aware that there was actually a degree to go do a lot of, you know, wildlife science, which is, um, you know, right up my alley, you know, based off all the time I spend outdoors. Um, But I thought it was, I've always been fascinated by behavior. Um, for me, whether it's people behavior, animal behavior, and, uh, I'm always trying to understand why people and animals do the things that they do. Gotcha. So, you know, that, that would get down to the core of it. Gotcha.
0: So you've kind of had that, that's where your interest lied and, and Auburn offered you, uh, the, the program that you wanted. So you went to Auburn, you got a wildlife science degree, and then after college, what did you do with that wildlife science degree?
1: Yes. Um, I would say the last couple of years, you know, just to kind of lay the foundation, when I was at Auburn, it was it was a very rigorous, you know, for an undergraduate degree. Most people, you know, when they hear that, they think, oh, maybe he can go be a game warden or something like that. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, a lot of the people that are going to go to veterinarians, Veterinary school would actually, you know, take the wildlife science program and then apply. So, you know, it, you know, nobody would have ever, you know, considered me in high school as being, you know, extremely smart. But I was very strong willed. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, I I battled through there, but you know, it was just sheer will. Yeah. And I am going to answer your question. But what I mean by that is before i even graduated there was always opportunities you know whether it was a professor or whatever saying oh well we need somebody to volunteer to go over here and work you know to help with this research project or work and help here and you know what i got to participate in um, trapping deer and a lot of that you know this was while i was still in college you know dealt with uh, we got to use thermal cameras and we'd sit up all night and i'd go to school during the day and We use thermal cameras and and uh cannon nets which you know i mean i absolutely love doing that and you know we (laughs) we had to do all kind of different things like that so actually for what i did after school started before i finished and that you know the the professors and anybody that could see that you know i had this burning passion to do stuff and i didn't care what it was you know it could have been the smallest thing or the biggest thing but um you know I would say that was my strength so when it got before I even graduated uh you know one of my professors approached me and uh he said well we've got a a 10-year research fawn mortality study going on it it's you know I'll mention it it's Norfolk Southern Railroad has some property in South Carolina and um he said would you be interested in Going out there and participating, you know, and working, and I was like, "Oh, I would love it." So, you know that that got me in the door for, you know, after graduation. And you know, I didn't even go to the you know my actual graduation. I was already going to South Carolina, you know, <laughs> and um, and you know it was it was awesome. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, we had a truck set up with thermal cameras. You know, you'd have two people in the back, but the whole point of the the study was to look at fawn mortality, and so you know we would go and at night we would you know as soon as the fawns start dropping for the most part uh we would ride every night with the thermal cameras you know through about roughly twelve thousand acres, and um we would go and catch fawns, which can be pretty interesting uh we had some different strategies, but you know just spending time you know out there and observing and watching that's what I love like my passion is you know because you know like the professors and stuff that you know their their names are on the research and stuff like that you know they're the ones that do all the writing but I love being out in the woods collecting the data and learning the different
0: things and right Right. so uh, so it sounds like it was a seamless transition from what you were already doing in college to what you went into uh, on this, uh, this research project. Now what are, you know, this fawn mortality rate, whenever you're doing a study there has to be clear objectives that you're trying to, you know, reach. What were some of the objectives that you were, I guess, that you guys were focused on on this uh, uh, fawn mortality research?
1: Okay, so as far as the objectives is, um, you know, to study this particular site was a very highly managed location. And what I mean by that, they managed the predators at a high level. They kept, as far as the hunting of white-tailed deer and stuff like that, they kept immaculate records. Gotcha. I mean, you could almost envision the best-case scenario. So, the objective was to see what the, the mortality rate was in a very highly managed piece of property. So, when we would catch the fawns, we would uh, radio collar them, we would, uh, you know, put different um, tags in their ears, we'd weigh them, we'd do all those things, you know, plant the gender, and then, you know, to reduce stress on the fawns, you know, we had a certain amount of time that we needed to do, be able to do that gotcha to reduce stress but we when we would go it's almost like the radio telemetry that we use is you know it's still holding the wand at that time and during the day we would go and check on them and see you know if they had a mortality beep it was a different signal than one that had been moving so let's say we went in and we had a mortality beep when we got there you know it was to determine the cause of death so the objective was you know, to collect data on fawn mortality. And, um, you know, just, you know, once you get that, you see, you know, is how, you know, which predators does it appear or, um, you know, how many uh, fawns are the predators taken, how many, how much of it is natural mortality. So um, after about 10 years of that, um, and everybody can, you know, go and they've, You'd look it up or they can read it. You know, Dr. Ditchkoff was if you'll put his name and Fond Mortality in South Carolina in there it'll it'll pop up and you'll um that was whenever people that you know were out there reading you'll start hearing about coyotes. Right.
0: So yeah. you did you did this for how many years?
1: I participated in that As far as the foreign research board of it, for about two years, I did go back and volunteer for a third, but at that point, I was getting my master's. Gotcha.
0: All right. So, you know, you put a collar on and you radio them and, you know, you're collecting this data, you know, like their weight and whatnot, but, you know, then you, you the i guess the signal that comes back is telling you whether they're active or whether they're dead right supposedly
1: supposedly yes
0: okay all right so talk to us a little bit about you know how that whole process works you know you you come up to the property and you you start you know you start wanding the area looking for a radio signal and you find one that has a i guess a mortality signal coming from it Walk us through what happens from that point to when you walk up onto the the fawn, whether it's dead or alive.
1: Okay, so um, depending on how many fawns we have radio collared at that time, you know you're driving through there, you're checking out you have a different uh, number for each fawn, and you go through there, and let's say you get a mortality signal. At that point, you obviously you know you've got to have your gear, you've got to have your cameras, and you know, different things to document everything. And it's always interesting. Um, let's say you, you, you're you getting the beeps. Well, um, as you use your the radio telemetry, you're constantly uh, turning it. And uh, it almost reminds me of the old rabbit ears on, on the TVs as far as getting the signal. But once you get headed in the right direction, you know, the beep will get stronger and stronger, and you'll see the signal. And, um typically if it was a natural mortality um for the most part you're going to be able to f- visually find that fawn and um the ones that were always interesting was if a bobcat had gotten a fawn um most of your cats will cache their prey right yep. and why that makes that interesting is they bury it and um we spent more than one occasion in giant briar patches over our heads trying to figure out where a bobcat has buried a fawn so that's always interesting
0: so before Uh, we move on to that part is okay so you determine what the cause of death is and when you say natural causes how do you determine what is a natural cause and what are some of those natural causes that uh, that you found while doing this study
1: Okay, um, you know that can be a very um, it depends kind of question, but some of the things are you'll just straight up see a fawn that's malnourished. Okay. Um. And uh, uh. And it's typically, um. You know, within those that first month and a half, because uh, one of the things that the research did end up showing was that once a fawn The fawns reach a certain age and size that um they're more likely to be able to um evade predators and different things but typically that natural mortality you would actually see pretty early on but you'll see a malnourished um fawn and i mean it it appear to be pretty much i mean you can tell you just see bones different things like that and um and then some of the other things would be uh and you'll have to forgive me for the name, but sometimes, um, food, um, when they're eating or, you know, like stuff gets impacted in their gums. Mm-hmm. And one of the signs of that is like their jaws Gotcha. and the gum lines will be really swollen. You know, we didn't see that very often, but, um, you know, those, a lot of, some of it was a process of elimination, but you know, I did recent more recent research that they went into extreme detail in that. Um, But, you know, typically, you know, natural mortality, you're not going to see a whole lot of damage for for us because we were checking the fawns so frequently. Like, you know, the predators, scavengers, and stuff like that would not have the majority of the time gotten to them because we're checking the fawns so frequently. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So... On this malnourishment, is that because the mother is not providing or is not giving them the milk they need, or is it other types of diseases that are causing them not to uh, express the mother's milk?
1: Yeah, that's, um, once again, that's a pretty loaded question. Um, And, you know, I wish I could be more specific in that. Mm Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it it could be all of the above and that, um, you know, because you can even look in domesticated animals and it's that, you know, for the animals to get that colostrum right off the bat, you know, because it has all the different things that they need to help them, you know, get that start. Right. And, um, that is a really big deal. And you know, if that fawn doesn't, you know, get that, then, um, you know, that would probably be one of the most likely gotcha. causes, gotcha. but, you know, you could probably do a research study right? on right. just that alone.
0: Okay. So now moving into not like, let's say, a death by, by predator, um, you okay. said, you said, you got into the bobcat a little bit and how they they kill it. Um, did you find that there was one animal specifically that uh, I guess was responsible for the highest fawn mortality rate from a predator?
1: Um, I believe in in this research front um, project, and you know over the years, um, the coyote. Okay. Um, you know, from all the data and stuff up here, to make a you know a substantial um, you know impact right. um, on on the uh, on the fawns. But something to keep in mind is that this was a highly managed right, right. property that was trapped very heavily. And following this research, they did another fawn study and more of a What would what you would consider a you know poor quality habitat, right? Not very well managed. So that you know that's a good comparison. So yes, the coyotes made an impact still, even though that you know all the predators and stuff were being trapped. But their impact at the other research site where management and the habitat was poor, the mortality rates for the fawns were. Extremely higher, right? Significantly higher.
0: Uh, just on numbers alone, right? But from like a, an overall percentage, the coyote still, you know, was responsible for the highest percentage of fawn mortality on both locations.
1: uh To my recollection, gotcha. I, you know, I don't know the, the, you know, the other site the details as well as I do the one that I participated. But there is a side note that I would like to add. Um, if you would yeah. allow me to do that. Um, something that a lot of people I don't think i have talked about. You know, everybody's about, oh, the coyote, the coyote. Um, and, you know, this is my personal opinion based off my experience. Um, and just bear with me, like domestic dogs. I'm not talking about your dogs that, you know, stay on the porch. Yeah. I'm talking about, because um, we did have one section of the property where, you know, you would get a group of dogs and they would get a specific route gotcha. that they run through. And because they they were so consistent in going through that specific area, um, you know, it's my opinion that they make, they can within that area, make an impact on the farm mortality and You know, not only with that study, but with some other personal experiences that I've observed over the years. Coyotes, the way that they hunt and, you know, the way that they live, they have such large home ranges. And typically when they go through an area, it's kind of like a wave. Right. If that makes sense. Like you might have a thousand acres over here and you haven't had a whole lot of fawn mortality. And then all of a sudden, you know, you'll have three or four fawns in that area like overnight and they'll come through in a wave and it might not be, you know, it might be a, a, you know, a while before you would get that other wave.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: you know, one of the big things to keep in mind with this fawn research study is, you know, once those fawns reached a certain point, um, whether it was six weeks or eight weeks, their ability you know, the probability of them being able to be recruited, to that year's population, once they reach that certain size and age, was extremely higher. Right, they're so vulnerable from birth up to you know, I I'll have to go back and look, but like six to eight weeks. Gotcha. To so many things, whether it's natural mortality, predators, but um, that was just something that I was.
0: So basically, every people. day that they're alive, it, it's it's greater for them. You know, is, is just one step closer to increasing their, the, their, their survival rate. Yes. Okay, all right. Now, I want to talk to you about those dogs. Were these like farm dogs that were running this area or and what, just chasing down deer and killing them? Or were these, like when you say domesticated dogs, were these like somebody's pets that were just running around the woods? Well,
1: you know, we did have particular parts you know and you're talking about 12,000 acres so yeah their impact was minimal but the areas where we did have houses and you know for whatever reason you would you would get a couple group of dogs and you know they kind of get that little pack mentality right and they would have that particular route you know that where they would just pound that area over right. and over right and typically when a domestic dog you know when they go through there and they kill some type of animal it, you know, this is not exact science, but typically, you can tell that they've messed with it. But it's almost like they don't know what to do with it. Right. Where right. when you find sign of a coyote, having got stuff, you've got bones spread out all over the place. Right. Right. And typically, domestic dogs, it's almost like they've they've got it and they've done a few things, but you know, they they're almost killing it because of the chase. Right. You know, they haven't return back to that we've got to devour everything right so it's almost like a game to them yeah uh, you know that would be you know in my opinion the best explanation for that right
0: okay so now now backing up a little bit um you know you mentioned you're you know you get to the carcass uh, and you determine what the cause of death was um at the, at that point, what are you, specifically what are you doing to determine that cause of death?
1: Okay, you're just saying when I first walk up there, yeah,
0: you, you and know, you know, first you, of
1: all, understand that um, I was not alone. I had a lot of great people that helped me.
0: Right, right, right. But
1: um, our uh, we would go up there. Um, you know, we would start taking pictures. Um, we would start recording everything. Um, that we could see and observe, and we would document it because, like anything, you know, the more experience you get, the better you get at doing right. it. But sometimes you still have to go back and and look at everything, and then look at the pictures, and you know, over time, you know, when you you know when you get enough data. To compare it, then um you can make a you know a determination, but like like I said, with the domestic dogs, typically you'll get you know you can see where they've kind of chewed on it and mouthed it and done different things like that. the bobcats will cache it, and um, the coyotes, it'll pretty much just be bones where they've scattered it everywhere, you know, just in my experience, and then the natural mortality the majority of the time you're looking at a malnourished right. Right. animal that um, for the most part does not have any signs of trauma
0: okay and then you just you document all of that right yes do you do any additional tests like on uh, any part of the carcass uh, do you weigh it or, or take any additional measurements of uh, I don't know like the body
1: it, once we go up to it and we're looking at a you know a fawn that's dead yeah, we're talking about yep. we're talking
0: about prior. Yep. After you um, find it dead.
1: Yeah, I, I do, I do not. Um, I feel like we did not, you know, weigh them or anything like that. Gotcha. Um, we, you know, we did have a checklist, but I don't think uh, weighing them once we found them, or you know, doing any type of autopsy
0: or measurement, um, like measuring yeah. the the head or a jawbone or a spine or anything like that.
1: No, uh, because, you know, we had the data capture, and then, you know, like if we had, you know, been tracking it every day that we tracked it, we monitored it, and stuff like that. So, you know, um, you know, for this particular research study, no, we did not do that.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So, I guess what, you know, this is kind of a vague question, and I'll let you answer it however you want, but while you were there, and I know that research went on for a while even after you, but... while you were there what did that study I guess teach you or what were the results of this study on this fawn on fawn mortality
1: um why answer the very last part of the question as far as when you're talking about science you know it you you think back to the scientific method and everything's a theory until it can be replicated right so Um, You know, some people prior to this had tried um, something similar to this in Texas, but due to the habitat and things like that, it was difficult to get a very large sample size. Okay. Um, This particular place in South Carolina, the the habitat was, you know, well managed. This was a um, habitat that they use fire very regularly. So when you're, you know, if you can picture driving through the woods at night with thermal camera, you know your odds of being able to find a fawn bedded are much higher than, you know, trying to go somewhere where it's thick and gnarly and, you you know, you can't spot them. Right. So, yes, this was a research project where I was only a small part. and there were, you know, they'd worked on it years before, they'd worked on it years after. But the great thing about this is it provided a lot of data. Uh, It provided um, a very site-specific location and this was the results over you know uh you know a fairly long period right so you know what as far as the you know within the science community what this offered is you know for following people to come back do their research and to see if it could be replicated or in the case of the other site that was in a poor habitat compare the mortality to you know habitat that's poorly managed versus highly managed. So, you know, there's a lot of ramifications. What did I take away from this experience? Well, the wonderful part of being, you know, the opportunity that I was given was not only was I working on um, the farm research study, you know, I spent a lot of time guiding hunters and spent a lot of time, um, you know, trapping, uh, you know, pigs. And, you know, one of the, I think, you know, I guess if I'm, you know, being a little selfish, um, you know, because we also got to do different surveys as far as population surveys, sex ratios, we got to use thermal cameras, we got to use spotlight stuff. And this place had such meticulous records that you could sit there and they would pull a jawbone. And it, And if that deer had been tagged, or radio collared, you know, the little, um, chips that your pets get in their ears. Right. That like, let's say they show up at the vet. Well, let's say they lost your ear tag, you know, all that. Well, you could still scan it and let's say you aged that jawbone, you know, based off how you were taught, you could actually go back if it had the chip in the ear and see if you were right. 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 Does that make sense? So a lot of, I learned so much more than just the research right but the very best thing that i think i learned was working with some very incredible people that were way smarter than me right but being able to use the thermal cameras and to spend that much time at such a amazing place i got to observe deer being deer right i mean just imagine driving down the road at night and you're sitting there and the deer are bedded or you're watching them with the thermal cameras and those different things it ties back into that behavior so like i think that's one of the things that a lot of people miss out on right. and i've missed out on is not spending enough time watching deer being deer right because you could go down the road and be uh you know because Thermal cameras, for the most part, work best at night. But, like, let's say it's right before dark. There's still real, just breaking daylight. And you don't see any deer. But you look over there at the thermal camera, and there's, you know, there's a, you know, a buck bedded 20 yards off the road. And you cannot see him. And he's laying with his chin down on the ground. And you're going right by him. Right. And, right. you know, like, if we ever had to stop for something, you watch how that deer responded. Like, to me... Those are the things that I learned, yes, predators have an impact Um, in this particular place. You know, it was almost a baseline since it was a highly managed place. Right. And compared to the vast majority of places, this place, yes, this was the mortality rate from predators. This was the natural mortality rate. Yes, all those things are wonderful, great experiences, but what I learned the most was Spending time out there And watching the behavior Right, right
0: So uh, if you can remember this uh, d- data uh, The the years that you were there Can you give us an act like a number Or a percentage of You know This percent of fawns died each year In that study
1: um, I can tell you what I remember I know our goal was always To try to catch about 50 fawns Okay you know, every season when they dropped. Um, uh, you know, and shame on me for not bringing the, the um, you know, where it was published and reading all that. But uh, if, if people want to find it and they want to read it, like I said, if you'll just um, look up Dr. Ditchkoff, Auburn University, you know, uh, Fond Mortality Studies, South Carolina, any of that's going to bring it up and it's, it explains it really well. Um, but I'll, you know, and I apologize for not, you know, remembering
0: the specifics on that. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, with this research, you know, obviously you said you learned or you were able to watch deer just being deer, right? Um, so what specifically were you able to take away from doing this research, doing, you know, doing this job and transition that over into your hunting and how you, how, what you learned from this study helped you in the timber as far as hunting was concerned.
1: Okay, yeah, that's a great question. Um, But the first part that I learned is that when you're working 15 and 16 hours a day, you know, South Carolina, the South Carolina I was in, their gun season comes in August 15th and does not go out till December 31st. Wow. So if you're guiding hunters and you're doing this, 15 and 16 hours a day it's incredibly hard to find time to hunt (laughs) um so you know unfortunately um and selfishly as much as i love that um i knew that i was not going to be very happy even though i could spend all that time out there being a part of it you know i still enjoyed fishing and hunting and um and also, to be honest the the part of the wildlife science the the part that I enjoyed that behavior that research being out in the field it's not a very steady income, it's kind of seasonal, and it's very difficult to make a living right and while I was there, there was also a lot some things that I learned that I could have done to make a living, but you know, morally and ethically for me. Um, when I go to bed at night, I want to be able to to agree and to be on the same page with what I'm doing. And I knew that, you know, for me to pay the bills and to be happy with the decisions that I made, that um, at that time, it was going to be best for me to go back to school and and see if I couldn't find a job to where I had a little more time to hunt and fish but also something that I could be proud of when I went home at night
0: okay okay um so what was the I guess what in in North Carolina or uh excuse me was it yeah South Carolina in South Carolina in the area that you were doing this study what was the deer population like was it uh was it a big deer population i know that um this was this property was manicured you know highly manicured but uh, in in the the area maybe including that even maybe even outside of that what was the deer population like
1: um and this is a relative um you would consider it very high um even though they had a very long hunting season. Right. Um, And compared, you know, when everything's relative, you you can take the state of Alabama, and somebody can say over here that the, you know, the deer density is very low. And then you go over here and it can be very high. Right. Um, I would say the very well manicured property. You know, deer density was very high, but also they had all their needs and that they needed were there. But even the surrounding properties, in comparison, you know, you would not have problem if you spent some time, you know, like an afternoon or morning. It was more likely that you were going to be able to see a deer than you weren't. Right.
0: Okay. Um. All right. Cool. So, kind of getting back to like going all the way back when you were a kid, uh, kind of changing gears here a little bit. Um. Did you come from a a family that enjoyed hunting and uh, what you know the outdoors, hunting and fishing and all that stuff?
1: Well, I love this question um, because this this should give hope to a lot of people out there. Um, my my dad was not a hunter. Right. Um, he was a you know a coach, high school coach and teacher. Actually, all my family. Both of my parents and my sister are educators, but my dad was not a hunter. You know, he would fish a little bit. Um, my mom, some of her brothers were hunters, but you know, they were more, you know, like every once in a while kind of around. Right. So, and, uh, we moved a lot growing up. Um, uh, my parents were divorced. So I was kind of like this, I wouldn't say, you know. I was kind of a city kid. Yeah. You know, I was I was a little boy that was in the city, but still had the love of the outdoors. And fortunately, and you know, this is a real important, because I played sports, there was always like a coach. Right. Or one of my friend's dad that would take the time, you know, because I was dying to go. But, I mean, I didn't know where I was dying to go to, but I, I knew I wanted to go fishing or hunting you know all that appealed to me right but um it might have been like once or twice a year and you know i loved every minute of it right so you know that fueled my passion um now i will say supposedly i felt my first fish in a diaper with just a hook <laughs> you know kind of deal um but no you know i i was not the the boy that grew up in the country and Every single day of his life was out in the woods.
0: So, who was, I mean, did you have a specific mentor that kind of got you into it, or were you kind of uh, self-taught?
1: No, I was not self-taught. I, uh, my uncles that were on my mom's side, you know, whenever they would come around and talk about hunting, you know, uh, they would, you know, ask my dad, hey, you want to go hunting? And then, you know, once he had me, he's like, well, you know, this is a chance to spend time with my son, you know, cause my dad, if anything, he just hunted so that he could spend time with me. Cause he knew I was going to go hunting anyway. Right. So we kind of learned together. Oh, cool. But you know, just a kind of a funny side note, like if it was up to my dad, I think he would rather shoot the deal with paintball guns <laughs> and everybody have their own color. And when the deer come by they'd be like, Oh, I see that you know, that's kinda how he is. Yeah. Um but uh there were so many, you know, like and it's so random, but you know, like coaches. Um even you know, just you know, the Lord put different people in my life that took that time, you know, to to take me.
0: Right. Right. Right, and uh, so you, it wasn't just necessarily one person; it was a handful of people that kind of uh, were there as you progressed through, I guess, being a hunter. Right?
1: Yes. Whether it's fishing or hunting, um, you know, I had a bow long before I had a gun because of you know the different places we lived. You know, we walking around with a gun would have been a problem. Yeah, but a boy walking around with a bow at that time, nobody thought that was a you know a big deal.
0: Right, absolutely, absolutely. So let's see here. I want to talk a little bit about like how old were you when you started hunting?
1: Oh, I, I can remember when I was five, driving, manipulating, doing everything that I could to get my uncle's, you know, one of my uncles uh, to take me with him and my dad. And, uh, I think they thought that if they put me through enough stuff, they would discourage me until I was older. Right. But, um, you know, they, they gave me this single shot shotgun, obviously with no bullets and I would walk around behind them. And at that time, I'm fairly certain that single shot shotgun was, uh, longer than I was. Right. Right. And, you know, it was my job. They taught me gun safety. They did all that. Um, and, uh. I I don't think they ever gave me a bullet until I was about ten. Right. Um. But uh, you know, I would get a couple opportunities a year to go. I can remember but, you know, they were t- they were laying a foundation. Right, right. I can remember
0: uh, one of the first animals, and I think it was the first animal I ever shot with a gun, was a pheasant, and I remember going out with my uncle. I can't. I, I I remember my brother was still too young to go out with us um so maybe I was eight or nine years old or something like that and my uncle took me out pheasant hunting and we jumped a pheasant and i Pulled that I picked that gun up and pulled the trigger and I don't even think it was on my shoulder and I was looking I don't, I don't even think I was looking down the barrel I just kind of quick pulled it up and pulled the trigger and I got I I got lucky and I shot that pheasant and that for me was like it was so awesome that it turned mm-hmm. out like that luck I think that was at, in some way maybe a starting point for my love of hunting was, you know, having my uncle, uh, take me out on that, on that particular pheasant hunt, but when, and you'll never forget that. No, never, never. Uh, so when, you know, fast forwarding a couple years, you know, when did you start getting serious? And I don't mean like, Hey, I have a bow now I'm going to start shoot. You know, I'm, I'm going to be a bow hunter, but when did you start becoming serious? about becoming a bow hunter.
1: Okay. Um I'll back up just a touch, but um I would say when I was ten, um my very first shot at a deer was not with a gun. I had like a little browning that was around forty five pounds and, you know, I could shoot at targets all day long. And believe it or not the very first deer I ever shot at, it was a Once again, it was a coach that took the time to take me out there. And, uh, you know, I eight point, you know, walked in and I was so nervous and I was like so beside myself. I mean, I'm pretty sure the deer had made at least one circle around my tree. And then I noticed that he was going to start to walk off. And I was like, I've got to find a way to shoot because I can't tell somebody, you know, this has happened and I haven't shot. Right. And believe it or not, I took my time. I aimed well. And, uh, I missed, it went over the back, you know, and I couldn't understand why, but, and I was a pretty slow learner because believe it or not, I spent a lot of time missing deer with my bow before I finally figured out that, you know, the deer, you know, dropping on the sound of the, the string and, you know, not bending it at the waist. So I give a lot of hope to a lot of people because I did not harvest my first deer until I was about 12.
0: Okay.
1: and um, was that with a my, gun or a bow you know, my, it was with a gun um, and the funny part about it is like my parents you know we didn't have a whole lot of money Right. and for them my dad um, I'll back up just a touch around that same year that I missed the buck you know I remember dad taking me to a pawn shop and buying like a really short 20 gauge yeah you know so that we could have something to work with and you know believe it or not two deer walked out there and uh he caught the hammer back and said go ahead now shooting it just dry fires and like i looked at him like i don't think this is what's supposed to happen and he poured <laughs> it back again and it dry fired and uh he says and i looked over there because he had a 12 gauge and i said you know i'm like trying to grab it Right, right. And he's shaking his head at me like, "There's no way you're shooting a three-inch slow twelve-gauge," you know. <laughs> and I mean, I didn't care. I mean, it could have been a cannon; I would have taken it. But he wouldn't let me, and he went ahead and shot the deer. So uh, you know, I had to, you know. But that was another part of the growing experience. But when I was twelve, um, and this was a big deal, my parents bought a two forty-three, right. a rifle. And you know, that amount of money, you know, at that time was. You know, that was not money we had, but they cared enough for me and knew how important it was. But when I went up to hunt with my uncles, I was such a bad shot with the rifle that when they would put me on the range and practice, you know, like, um, I didn't realize it, but they felt bad for me. And they were sticking holes in the bullseye to try to build my confidence. But for whatever reason, after that day, you know, when it was time to go hunting they said we're gonna put this rifle over here in the cabin here's a 12 gauge it's a pump and they put a box out there at about 15 yards and they said see if you can hit the box you know back then you could use buckshot yeah. and i shot and of course the box filled with holes and they're like this is what you're gonna hunt with <laughs> and i was like okay um you know i didn't know if there was some kind of strategy behind it that i didn't know but um at that age um because you know they they felt confident in me and that they would take me to the stand like a ladder stand or a box blind you know right. something you know right and but their rules were we put you here and you don't go anywhere and you don't leave this stand until we come back and i'd spent you know some time hunting and and they and i said even if i shoot a deer and they're like especially if you shoot a deer well believe it or not where we were hunting there was A bunch of duck hunters on the river, and as soon as they were out of sight, here walks this doe like out of a dream, and she gets about twenty yards, and I shoot, and um, she drops. So like from one o'clock all the way to dark, I'm sitting here staring at my first deer, like you know just right there in front of me, and but I can't get out of stand. And then you know to me, it you know like a little kid, it felt like you know the moon had done risen and everything by the time they got there after dark. And, uh, they're like, come on down. And I was like, you know, and I went down and, you know, they're heading away. And I'm like, no, my deer's right over there. And, you know, they didn't even believe I'd shot my first deer, but my very first deer, I had to stare at for hours from a ladder stand. Um, (laughs) you know, so, but I, you know, nobody's ever going to accuse me of being a great white hunter. Um, you know, but it's a long road. So when, to answer your question when did I very you know get serious about it like I would say here's an example you know I played you know like I, I played a lot of baseball and basketball uh, my sophomore year I'd never been turkey hunting or anything like that and we would always have baseball practice before school and if you missed baseball practice you were going to run And I'm not talking about a little bit. Right. But uh, the day before turkey season, you know, I got some kind of calls from Walmart. And I went out there and, you know, I would always something I'd heard about. You get out there and make the call and listen for them. Well, I heard all these turkeys gobble. I was like, oh, I think I like this. So I told my coach at that afternoon practice, I said, "If if I get a turkey and bring the beard, uh to tomorrow's afternoon practice, will you not uh, make me run? And he was a little bit of a hunter and fisherman. And he said, and he said you ever turkey hunted before? And I said, no. And he said, yeah, I'll make that deal. And believe it or not, I killed my first turkey. <laughs> um, that next morning, here I am, you know, I've got three jakes at 10 yards, and I know nothing about turkey hunting. Right. And, you know, and then I had about four or five longbeards behind that about 25 yards. Instead of shooting the long beards, I shot one of the jakes at 10 yards because I wanted to make sure I was not running. (laughs) But, you know, I would say probably when I started really investing a lot of time. Now, I played sports. Right. But, like, senior year of high school, I was playing football. When i leave football practice, I would go and play baseball, you know, at one of their leagues at, you know, a college not too far down the road. And, you know, I was doing that, but, like, You know, the next morning, I would get up and go turkey hunting. Or, like, on Fridays, we might have a way game. You know, we might not get back to midnight. And at that time, I was in a hunting club that was about two and a half hours away. And when I get in my vehicle, instead of going to spend time with friends, I hopped in my vehicle. I would drive all night, get at the hunting club, you know, just in time, maybe to eat breakfast, and I would hunt all day and all weekend. Nice. And, you know, that's when I started, like... Really, you know, just having that wheel—that you know, you know, whether it's hunting, whether it's fishing, whatever it is you want to achieve in life, right? Yeah, you know, once you have that wheel, you know, but that's when I started getting serious,
0: and that's where your fo- thats where your focus in life
1: was. Yeah, unfortunately, I, you know, a lot of the sacrifices I made was—I uh, never really had to meet girlfriends make it through hunting season. <laughs> I would always warn them, and I would always tell them. You know, I like it a lot, it's great. I said, but when it comes time from when hunting season's here or it's getting close, that's where I'm going. Right. Right. I said, You're welcome to be a part of it, but that's where I'm going. And normally uh they would make it to about January. You know, our season ends at the end of January. And if they made it to Valentine's Day, they were so mad at me that it was pretty much over by then. <laughs> I <I'll
0: laughs> tell you that, what, um, the the
1: girl that I was
0: dating before uh my wife uh she she was there as i i guess started the rekindling process of how much i loved bow hunting and uh, unfortunately mm-hmm. uh i i think i picked bow hunting over her and <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, hey, that, hey yeah. but with my wife before we even started dating i sat her down and i said listen when it October and November get here uh you might be taking a back seat for a little bit so uh at least I was up front and honest with her and she respected that and her her dad is a big time bass fisherman and he and he you know he goes out fishing all the time and uh she understood because her dad was really passionate about fishing so uh yeah she, she she understood that but As far as archery, like bow hunting, I mean, you started off, I mean, when you were in high school, is is that when, Mm -hmm. I mean, were you doing all this bow hunting then?
1: Well, for Alabama, the way the season works, archery season would open around about October 15th. Gotcha. And then the gun season would come in about November the 20th. Okay. So I always had that month to bow hunt. And I think to actually get my first deer with a bow, um, and like I said, when I said I missed a lot of deer with my bow, even though I was only hunting a month, you know, before the gun season, you know, we're probably talking about me missing 20 plus deer (laughs) with a bow. (laughs) You know, I only missed that one buck. You know, that was the only opportunity I ever had as far as like a lot of the rules and stuff, you know, the buck had to be this size or different things like that, you know, would just happen. But I mean, I missed a lot of does. Right. Um, right. But to get my very first deer with a bow, I actually had to finally make the commitment to take it during gun season one day. Right. And I got my first deer with a bow, you know, during gun season. And you know, like that had been so long, you know, because I, you know. I'd been shooting a bow for a long time and I'd started bow hunting when I was 10. Um, you know, and I, I would say that it lit more of a fire, but the fire was already there. Right. Um, and to answer your question, five years ago is when I made the commitment that I finally got it in my head that all I was going to do was bow hunt. Right. Like, I mean, it, and you know you have to like truly have that conviction because the first time you start seeing bucks chasing and doing those things and you know you can pop them with a gun you know somehow that gun finds its way out of the, the cabinet you know right but um five years ago is when i finally did it and um i'm not picked up a gun since not that anything's wrong with gun hunting but i just i love bow hunting right i mean that's what i love
0: right absolutely and how old are you now i'm 34 34 okay so you were 20 roughly 29 when uh, you said i'm
1: just gonna be a bow hunter all right cool yeah so and i did not get my first butt with a bow until
0: 2013 2013 okay so yeah mm-hmm. the the you know we're, we're running up on time here but i want to end kind of generally speaking in the five years that you've decided to strictly use bow and arrow. Um, how has your success been?
1: Um, and I know we're running up on time. I had to change my perspective. Um, because the years up to that, you know, I was able to harvest, you know, for this area, you know, some really nice bucks with a gun, right? You know, and, um, had started doing it consistently, but once I started trying to do those same things with a bow in my hand, yeah. um, I was not, you know, you know, if you want to use the term successful at this point in my life, I've actually got to where you think about it as achievement and it's a mindset. Right. Um, and you have to have the mindset about the process and I know people are going to hate this because I'm from Alabama, but if you listen to Nick Saban or different people, you know, everybody thinks about Nick Saban and winning games. But if you listen to him, he talks about the process. And if you'll do the process, you know, the wins or whatever it is in life that you're trying to accomplish will be the result. And, you know, cause I kept struggling so much in the beginning because I would set a goal and say, I want to get my first buck with a a bow. And, that, you know, I would do whatever, you know, I felt like, you know, obviously legal, stuff like that. But I was not, you know, achieving that goal. But the problem was is I didn't have a process. Right. I didn't have the mindset that I had to, to just follow the path and do the things that I had to do to achieve the goal. Right. Does that make sense? Right. Like, because, you know. It's real easy to sit there and say, "Gosh, I just want to go get my first boat with a bow." Well, unless you learn how to do the things that you have to do, and basically what I boiled it down to, and um, you've got to put in time, work, and then you know at some point you've got to put in money to achieve things. right Now, everything's different. You know, if you're willing to put in more time and work, then you might not have to spend as much money not whether you're talking about public land, private land, whatever, but I had to be, I had to get very intentional in what I was trying to accomplish. Gotcha.
0: It was a mindset. Right.
1: Like I had to, yes, I had to have that mindset because if I had all this other clutter and all this other, you know, other stuff going on, then, you know, you know, it, I would get away from the process, but. As I started having a change of mindset, now I was forced to because I was not, you know, getting the results that I wanted. Um, But, you know, once I did that and started realizing that things are not really about successes and failures, they're more about the process and the experience, you know, because when I was younger, I was uh, quite a bit of a whiner. You know, every time adversity would come along, I didn't handle it well. Right. And, uh, you know, several years, I guess 2013, I got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Okay. I had no clue what it was. And I went from being in the best shape of my life, even better when I was playing sports, because um, I had been doing CrossFit for several years. And, you know, there I, once that happened, I went into the, oh, poor me, why me? Right. And I've learned... You know, you know, by no other choice that every single one of us has to go through adversity um, you know, and there's no sense in whining about it right. you know you you do the process, you do the things that you have to, and a lot of it is discipline, and you can't sit there and you know make excuses and you know that's something I' I did for a very long time, um, my. But I'll, I know we're wrapping up. My very first book. I gotta tell you the story. It was on public land, uh, right across from the house. Um, I've never gun hunted public land, but just bow hunt. And believe it or not, there are mountains in Alabama. Um, right. And what makes and I go, I go in and I hunt by boat because that's how I hunt the public land, because you go in through the cliffs and you. you the little drains, whenever it it rains real hard on these cliffs and mountains, you'll get like this little tiny little drain, you know, have the rocks and stuff that go up, and I found you know just over the years that's the easiest way to slip into these really tough mountain places or cliff places, and um, you know go in by boat, because all the other stuff you know people would have to walk miles by land, and I get in there and it's. You know, it's it's pre-rut, and believe it or not, just, you know, like a fantasy, because I'd been hunting so long and never thought it would ever come together. Um, I get my first buck with a bow. Um, I actually made a good shot. But, see, I'm colorblind. I'm red colorblind. So, um, me tracking is always interesting. Wow. Now, when I was in South Carolina, I had actually got a beagle when I was younger and had trained it you know like on a leash to follow the blood trails and I actually used it when I was guiding up there but at this point um, my dog had gotten too old so I spent about three hours trying to find this deer and uh, you know the deer had not gone very far and of course I'm thrilled to death and the funny part about this story is I've got to get it off this mountain and it's almost a straight cliff down this little rocky drain but I'm, I'm not worried about it, you know, too much. I'm worried enough that, you know, like I'm using my pull rope and doubling it quite a bit in case I slip and fall so the deer won't sink, you know, to the bottom of the river. Right. Anyway, I get to that last little part right before you get into the boat. And of course, uh, the pull rope breaks and I go diving into the boat and it's really deep at that bank. I go diving into the boat. And you know because if if it goes in the water it sinks you know it has holes in it and it sinks and um i caught the very end of like the g3 and i'm like laying over the boat just holding this deer you know because the rest of it's underwater right and i'm sitting there trying to find some strength to, to drag this deer back in this boat so my first buck that i harvested even after all that time could have sunk to the bottom of the river, but somehow I managed to get it back in the boat. But you know, those are all
0: wonderful memories. Absolutely, and that's uh, that's the most important thing, man. I I, I uh, had I had a really good uh, day of shed hunting this past week, uh, this weekend, and uh, it's like I'm looking at my wall full of all these sheds, and I can, like, I can almost pick out. Every shed and tell you exactly where I found it, what the temp- like what the weather conditions were that day. Uh, if i know the buck or if i had past experience with that buck so it's uh i think memories is is why we do this but i'll tell you what nathan i really appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast and uh and chat with us today not only about that uh the research that you did but the uh you know sharing a little bit uh about how you got into hunting as well and be and bs'ing with us today And there you have it. Huge shout out to Nathan for coming on the podcast, man. Thank you for taking time to do that. Huge shout out to each and every one of you, as always. Thanks for tuning in and listening to the podcast, man. We are definitely growing. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast uh, wherever you download, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean or wherever you download your podcasts. Please subscribe. And not only are you getting the Nine Finger Chronicles, but you're getting Land and Legacy, and you're getting the DIY Sportsman, and you're getting Southern Ground, and you're getting Transition Wild. And, drumroll please, the Sportsman's Nation has launched its second podcast feed, and that is the Sportsman's Nation Big Game Western Hunting Podcast podcast rss feed and you can find that at sportsmansnation.com and dude i'm telling you here when when this is all said and done we're going to have a lineup for whitetails we're going to have a lineup for big game western hunts we're going to have a lineup for waterfowl and we're going to have a lineup for fishing and a blog with videos and once once this is complete it's going to be It's going to be like the go-to for the North American sportsman. I mean, it's not going to be just like people who write articles about fishing or hunting. It's going to be people who write articles who actually live and do that. And not just like top 10 ways to kill a big buck during the rut, top five ways to kill, kill an early season buck. Strategies and tactics from people who actually live this life you know not just a writer so to speak so um that's the goal anyway look forward to that coming very soon huge shout out to all the partners of the nine finger chronicle podcast exodus wasp gearhead ozonix lone wolf bighorn outfitters ripcord archery i tell you what without them this doesn't happen so well it would happen but a lot less uh, especially uh, with the wife bathing down my neck as much time as I spend in this damn chair throughout the night. Other than that, guys, I got nothing else to say. Make sure you're following us on social media. A lot of stuff to come. So if you haven't already, you need to be signing up for Instagram and following, following uh, Sportsman's Nation and Nine Figure Chronicles on Instagram along, along with all the other uh, podcasts that are on this network. And I think that's it. If you're going to be in a tree, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.